south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 285, covering the week of October 25th through October 29th, 2021. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, like our Gab page, and subscribe to our YouTube page. Lots of great stuff out there on our social media accounts. We do put it out there. Um, Our YouTube page is the most active page. We put our podcast there. We have our videos. We do post on Gab. Not as much on Twitter, but you can follow us there if you would like. Also, go to abbevilleinstitute.org. Give us an email address. We'll give you a free ebook exploring the Southern tradition. You get our daily dose of Dixie Monday through Friday. It's a great way for us to keep in contact with you. We don't give that information to anybody else. That is ours to have and to hold till death do us part. And so if you just want to do that and get that free ebook, and then you get on that list. I know you get an email every day from us, sometimes twice a day if we have other things going on. Please don't unsubscribe from it. Just if you just click on it and put it in your trash can if you want, if you don't want to read it, or archive them and save them for later. But it does help generate traffic to the website, which also boosts us up in our search rankings and everything else and gives us uh, more visibility. Uh, also, I want to remind you that we have the Douglas B. Rogers Essay Contest. It's great, right? This is an opportunity for you, if you're an undergraduate student, to get some scholarship money. So if you want a little money, $2,000 is first prize. If you want a scholarship, we also have a second and third prize. Go to abbyvillinstitute.org, click on that Doug B. Rogers, Douglas B. Rogers essay contest, middle of the page or so, and submit an essay. It's a great way to try to get some, some scholarship money. We want our people getting some money to go to school, right? So go ahead and do that. Also, we do exist in your generous contributions alone. So if you like what we do, you like the podcast, consider a tax-deductible donation to the Institute. It is tax-deductible to the full extent of the law. We are at the end of the year. We're getting into that. We're here at the end of October. Uh, We've got about six weeks left of podcasting for the Institute, somewhere in there. And you are going to start seeing us send you some solicitations at time for donations. So if you're making your tax preparations, think about giving us a a, a nice donation. and, And I say a nice donation. That could be five bucks a month, right? It could be five dollars. I mean, we don't care. Just please consider that. What is the Southern tradition worth for you and your family? And what does it mean to you? So let's talk about the material we had this week. We're up against Halloween, right? So the, we started off the week with a, a great piece by Edgar uh, on Edgar Allan Poe by Casey Chalk. And really enjoyed Casey Chalk's work for the Institute. He does a good job. And, uh, you know, Poe is often considered to be an American writer, but he really is a Southern writer. In fact, Poe hated... Yankees. He hated them, despised them, couldn't stand them. He considered himself a Virginian. And I think Casey Chalk does a nice job in bringing that out and explaining how much of what Poe wrote was based on his understanding of the South. Poe, for example, really admired William Gilmore Sims, who was then blacklisted in the North eventually because he wrote the anti-Uncle Tom's Cabin stories. But Sims was a fantastic writer of the Romantic period, when I say the Romantic period, I'm talking about this 19th century period, um, not uh, the way we think of romance today, but um, a worldview, a way of looking at the world, and often historical subjects. It wasn't always rosy um, at all, 
but certainly it was uh, interested in the past and history, and you had these historic novels, and Sims did such a good job with that. In fact, his collection of material on the American War for Independence was invaluable, and guess what happened to it? It was burned to the ground uh, during the war. Um, so we lost a, a treasure trove of material because the Union Army decided it wanted to burn through South Carolina. Good guys, all those guys. I'll tell you, we should be defending all those people. It was justified, and these people deserved it. Sims deserved it. He, de we, he deserved to have his books burned. They deserved to go through Columbia, South Carolina, and knock off part of George Washington's, uh, George Washington's staff there at the statue. That Capitol building deserved to be shelled when nobody was in it anymore and it, everybody had surrendered. It deserved it. Uh, Columbus... Georgia deserved to be burned to the ground after the Union Army left. It deserved it. These people deserved it. Charleston, South Carolina, it deserved to have uh, federal gunboats zoom in on it for 500 days and shell it for no reason. It deserved it. These people deserved all this stuff. I mean, who are we to say they didn't deserve it? Those guys are just good guys doing the right things for the Union and for the righteous cause. They all deserved it. The Southerners deserved to be abused. So I, I think that, you know, before the war even, we had Southerners being abused, and Poe would stick up for them. And you had, of course, he made enemies. A lot of Northerners didn't like Poe. But this is the amazing thing about it. We, we hear about Poe, and there's several great readings of Poe on YouTube and other places where you have uh, uh, Basil the Rathbone go out and read The Raven, which is just so good. And, and uh, it's fun to get these, right, and, and hear people that really admire Poe. And there would be no American horror stories without Poe. There would be no detective stories without Poe. None of that stuff would exist. Poe was doing all this stuff first. He was so important to American literature. And he's a Southerner, and he made it, just like so many other Southern literary figures. Faulkner, for example, Eudora Welty. I mean, we could go down the line with people that are important, even people that... Uh, wouldn't necessarily be considered uh, conservative, right? But, I mean, they're still Southern. It's their worldview that made the literature so good. Truman Capote, for example. Uh, I mean, th these are people that uh, you may not like them. We've talked about Fran Flannery O'Connor on this podcast a bunch. We've done lectures on that. You may not like these people. You may not like their worldview. You may not like what they're, not necessarily their worldview, but um, what they write about and how they write it, but they're still Southern. And we've done this a lot with literature. So literature, music, art, all of these things matter. Culture matters. It's why we focus so much of it on the Institute, on this podcast, on the website. Culture matters. And I said this on my own podcast. Uh, I've, I'm going to say it next week if you listen to that show over there. But culture matters. And it used to be I, I just my eyes glazed over with this stuff, and I just didn't really care about it that much. I wanted to talk about politics and other things. But culture really does matter. And this is, if there, if there is a Southern people, if, if there is a reason why Henry Timrod was writing Ethnogenesis, for example, if there's a Southern people. And now Drew Gilpin Faust would look at that and say, well, this proves there was no Southern people because he has to write this poem that it all was created by the Confederacy. I would say that it was there beforehand, and everyone knew it. Everyone knew it. And it wasn't slavery, and it wasn't race, because you look at race, Northerners and Southerners agreed on that fundamental principle of race, inferiority of race is superiority of another race, and we've got Lincoln on record saying it. We know that, that Northerners believe the same exact thing. They may have differed on the institution of slavery, 
as a labor institution. This is what, again, we have to also understand it was a labor institution. And so Northerners did not think it was a just labor institution. Southerners generally argued it was. So we know there's a difference there. But then Northerners had slavery too and gradually got rid of it, whereas the South never had that opportunity. There was some discussion about it at the end of the war. But regardless, there was so much else to this. There was cultural differences, as David Hackett Fisher has pointed out in Albion Seed, that were not produced by slavery. They didn't come from that. They were already there. They were organic cultural differences. And I think Casey Chalk does a very good job of that in this, uh, in this particular piece talking about that. So we start with culture, and then, of course, within that, within this culture of the South, you have heroes, and Southern heroes are under attack. It's Robert E. Lee. It's John C. Calhoun. Look, John C. Calhoun for a long time was considered a Southern hero. Southerners talked about him. They, they referred back to Calhoun. He was one of the most important Americans in the history of the United States, without question important in the history of the United States. And so Calhoun's under attack by both the left and the right. And so what we have then is a situation where um, you can't admire Calhoun any longer. And that's unjust. It's unjust to admire John C. Calhoun. It's unjust now... Uh, for, uh, or they're saying it's, it's, it's not conservative or it is conservative. The left likes to say that Calhoun is conservative and, th- and then the right tries to run away from that. But you can't like Calhoun. He's the American Hitler. Well, this is unjust to actually say these things any longer. To say that you can't admire Calhoun. There's so much to admire about Calhoun. It's why we produced a video on it. It's why we've had, why we've had articles about it. We had one this week by John Devaney published at the, Ameri- at the uh, at Chronicles magazine, excuse me. So we ran a little snippet of it, and you can click over there. You should, you should get Chronicles. It's a great magazine. Um, but John Devaney, of course, is an Abbeville Institute scholar. We've, he's lectured at our summer schools many times, at other conferences many times. He also was uh, one of, of Clyde Wilson's students and uh, was one of those students that was there when I first started there. And so great. I mean, he's a great Southern scholar. And a realist. I mean, look, you read the piece. He's not, he's not apologizing for anything. He's not saying that Calhoun was right about everything. He's just saying what Calhoun was. This is what Calhoun was. But there's so much we can take from Calhoun and apply it to the 21st century. And there's things we can't. And that's okay. There's things we can't do that about George Washington, right? Same thing with Thomas Jefferson or anybody. There's things we can't do that about Aristotle or Cicero. We can't do it with everybody, but there are so many timeless things that he said and important things that we should be focusing on these heroes and why they're important. Same thing with Lee. So the piece by Paul Yarborough on Lee, uh, where he says you know, he's attacking George Will for attacking Lee. So this is the problem in American conservatism. Alan Gelzo writes a book on Robert E. Lee. George Will loves it because it says we should take down Lee's statue. So, I mean, where do we go from here? If we're going to take down these things, there is a slippery slope there. It's true. You take down Lee, then they come for Washington, then they come for Jefferson, and Gels would say, you can't do that, in his voice. Well, you can't do that. You can't take down Lee or Jefferson or Washington. You can't take down Jefferson or Washington. They are different than Lee. Lee was a traitor. Jefferson and Washington were not. Lincoln was uh, the greatest man to ever live, and I say my hosannas to Abraham Lincoln every day that he existed in America. But you see, George Will gets on board with that. Now, I, I, again, 
story from Clyde Wilson. George Will went to see him at one point, and apparently he was just so condescending and everything else. This was back in the 90s, and George Will's just a little prick. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. Uh, and Will has never really been conservative. He's been establishment, and the establishment right now thinks that it's good to take down Lee because that does not embody America. The establishment conservative, Conservative Inc., wants to get rid of Lee, and that's their stance on everything. That's their stance. And I think part of this is because we don't have a full understanding of American history anymore. We have platitudes, we have slogans, we have chants. John C. Calhoun, positive good, defender of slavery, and that's it. I'll never forget I was in Charleston and I was standing there at Calhoun's uh, grave marker, which, um, you know, it, beautiful cemetery. And I'm just standing by a tree. There's a tree that overhangs it. I'm standing by the tree and just kind of taking in the, 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 uh, the atmosphere. And a bunch of people come in. And, of course, Calhoun's grave, by the way, is the most visited grave of any vice president in American history. More people visit Calhoun's grave than any other vice president, right? So he's vice president of the United States twice, by the way. So um, I, I'm standing there, and these people come in, and who's this? Oh, John C. Calhoun. Oh, I don't even know who that is. So they don't even know who he is. Or people come in, oh, he's, oh that guy was terrible. He was a defender of slavery. This is all people know. This is all they know. And so you take the position, if you say to the one person, I don't know who that is, so they look it up. John C. Calhoun was the defender of slavery. <laughs> Well, we can't like that guy. We can't like that guy at all because he's the defender of slavery. Well, this is all you get. This is Samuel Flagg Bemis. Again, I'll never forget the image of Calhoun. And uh, his hair has come back and he looks like he's dead because this is right near the time that he had tuberculosis. He's getting older. Nobody shows the images of Calhoun where he's a nice-looking man and his young man and middle-aged, full of life. He was, as Devaney points out in his piece, he was someone that people love to talk to, very polite. He, the image you get of Calhoun is that he is de on death's door and he's the Grim Reaper. And he's vicious and he's mean. Everybody liked to talk to Calhoun. That's Nobody liked to talk to John Quincy Adams. Nobody did. And yet he's the hero. And Calhoun, the man that people really did like, is now what John, C. John Quincy Adams really was. I mean, this is, this is the thing, how his, history has been so distorted. Calhoun, from my knowledge, and I, I, I might be wrong, but I mean, he wasn't a duelist. He didn't fight any... Here's a guy that's verbally sparring with people throughout his entire political career and never fought a duel. Never fought a duel. Why? Because it was always within the context of, well, I can see your point, but what about this? Even in the positive good speech, if you read it, he's very amicable. He's a nice fellow in the speech. He's saying, well, what about this? I don't think you can do that. I mean, you're saying this. Well, I disagree with you. It's not vicious, but he's a statesman, as Clyde Wilson points out. It's Clyde, anybody knows Calhoun is Clyde Wilson. As he points out, he's a statesman because a statesman does things that go against the popular grain because of the right things to do. In his mind, he was always doing the right thing. So I, I love the piece by John Devaney. I love the piece attacking George Will and Alan Gelzo by Paul Yarborough. 
And then we have a piece by the Reverend Larry Bean. This comes from his blog, Father Hollywood. He hasn't been posting there much recently, but he, he was pretty active uh, for a while. And several years ago, I wrote a piece um, where he talks about slavery. And this is, again, the big elephant in the room a lot of times. You know, when you talk about slavery, oh, my gosh, you have to walk on pins and needles, hushed tones. You can't say things. Uh, it's okay to talk about Roman slavery, the fact that in Rome, virtually everyone of, of money had a slave or multiple slaves, and people were abused and tortured and other things. I mean, it was slavery in Rome was something widely practiced. It's okay to talk about that. It's okay to read Aristotle and Aristotle says one of the fundamental things, you have to have a slavery, right? I mean, this, it's okay to talk about that. But yet, Southern slavery, oh, we have to talk about this in hushed tones and uh, shake our head and bow our heads and show remorse every time we do it. For what? We didn't do it. Nobody now living was a slave owner, is a slave owner. We're not part of that. So we should be able to talk about this objectively. And again, I point back to a time that I uh, picked up a copy of uh, Fogel and Eggerman's Time on the Cross, and there was inserted into a Liberty Fund conference. And the discussion was, oh my gosh, people were upset about talking about slavery. This is 1990s, and people were upset about this. And uh, when Fogel and Eggerman would make talks on universities, people would walk up to them and say, oh, so you really, you, you're trying to defend slavery then? And he would say, no, I'm just showing you what the data says. I'm going over what the information says about the institution. It's not a defense of slavery at all. I'm just telling you what Southern sla American Southern slavery was what American slavery is. And I think that's where we have uh, a disconnect in America. Nobody reads Genovese. Nobody reads Fogel and Engerman. You know what they read? They read the 1619 Project. They watch Roots. They watch Django Unchained. This is what they get. They get that image of it, which is horrible. I mean, if, if that's all you got, they, they watch 12 Years a Slave. They don't read 12 Years a Slave because if you read 12 Years a Slave and then you watch the movie, they're different. In fact, there's some question about how much Solomon Northrop actually even wrote 12 Years a Slave. He, he told it to abolitionists who then wrote the book, and it was dedicated to Harriet Beecher Stowe. So how accurate is this going to actually be? And there are historians in the 80s that could actually look at these things dispassionately and say, you know what, I think some of this is a little bit fake. Some of this is made up. The way things are described, Solomon Northrop wouldn't say that. The way this is, this is abolitionists going in and, and changing things. For a popular press, they want to make it sensational. But regardless, the Solomon Northrop case, if you don't know about that, is horrible, right? A man is kidnapped. He's a free man. He's sold into the South. He lives for 12 years as a slave. And finally, what happens when it's found out what happens in Louisiana? He's freed. The state, I mean, the state government, the state gets involved. In fact, a U.S. congressman gets involved, and they make sure he is freed. If these people were so vicious, they would have said that guy. Well, he's not. A, he's he's still a slave. No, no. They made sure he was freed, sent back, go back to your family. So that's the lost part of that whole story. Interestingly enough. But the, the, the fact is, we have all this stuff out there, and nobody actually reads Genovese. Look, Genovese and Roll Jordan Roll, the point of that whole book was to show that slaves were not victims. They had a vibrant culture. They were, they were an intelligent people. But yet he also points out these caricatures of slavery just aren't true uh, for the most part. You can find abuse. You can find these things. But the caricatures that you get out of it just aren't there. And same thing with Fogel and Eggerman. They're not, they're not saying slavery was a good institution by far. And in fact, they say it's horrible. Anytime you have power of another person, it's horrible. And you, nobody wants that. 
But the point is they look at it dispassionately and say, well, here's the evidence. And so you take with that what you want, and the evidence shows that uh, a lot of the abolitionist attacks were overstated on the institution. You have Nehemiah Adams, for example, going into the South and um, looking at that. And then, of course, you have the Northern complicity in all of it, which is often the forgotten part of it. This is why that Pharaoh book, Complicity, uh, is so good. Um, there's another book that I was reading. Uh, it's called The Manor, titled The Manor. And it's about a plantation on Long Island, a Quaker plantation that had slavery. Right? So the Quakers are supposed to be anti-slavery, but here's this plantation that s- survived hundreds of years on Long Island. And uh, it uh, still the building is still there. And these were slave owners and slave traders and all kinds of things. And that's the lost part of the whole story of American slavery. And then there's the Thornton book, uh, which gets into the slave trade and how important that was. Uh, But it was, again, Northerners involved in that. But more importantly, it was Africans that dominated and created the the trade and set the terms and created, uh, got the the people in in bondage. This is what happened. So... uh, I like this Bean, uh, Reverend Bean piece because he's showing there's complexity here. There's complexity. And the anti-slavery societies that were started in the South, Southerners were cognizant of this and started looking at, well, maybe we can get rid of slavery. We don't really like it. It's not really that good. Maybe we should get rid of it. And they were the, they were the driving force in that. So the complexity of the institution is something that's lost in all the stupid caricatures that are out there on the Internet, the 1619 Project, and popular media, This is everything that's lost. And when you lose that, you actually create more racial tension and animosity than you do when you tell the real story. I've seen it over and over again. It's not to say that slavery is good. It's not to say it was a beneficial institution or that uh, we should keep it or anything else. Nobody would say that. But when you start talking about complexity and relationships and all the things that it involves, and you start to see the human element of both sides of it, Southerners are not just devils and vomit as, uh, as they were described. Well, then things start to change a little bit. There's actually reconciliation. And yes, there was violence, and that's un- unacceptable and, uh, and should never have happened. None of that should ever have happened. Post-war period, lynching should have never happened. None of that should happen. None of that violence should have happened at all. Horrible. At the same time, when that's all you focus on, you create a situation where the people that are in the South are just uh, seen as violent extremists. They're just a caricature. They're just something that they're not. They're not even people anymore. They're subhuman. I pointed out an Abraham Lincoln vampire slayer. I remember I was at a conference, and I said, look, it's it's not just Django Unchained. We were talking about popular media. It's not just Roots, Django Unchained. You can, you can, you can understand how... Some of those things can be made because there were horrible people in the South that did horrible things, right? I mean, you can understand where some of that comes from. But the fact that Abraham Lincoln, vampire slayer, Lincoln is a va- Southerners aren't even human. They're vampires or zombies. This is what they are. They're not even real people anymore. And so because they're not real people, you can just take them out. It doesn't matter. They're not real. They're not, they don't matter. They're not real people. They don't have real feelings, real families, none of that. When you celebrate Nat Turner on a slavery monument, you're saying that the people that he killed aren't even, they're not even important. They're not real people. They were just evil. That's all they are. So, where is the reconciliation and all that is the question. Where do we have this discussion? We don't. You can't. 
So, I love that piece. But I want to wrap up the week. October 29th is actually Thomas Francis Byard's birthday. And if you don't know who T.F. Byard was, senior, he was a senator from Delaware, an ambassador to Great Britain. He was secretary of state in the Grover Cleveland administration. And interestingly enough, during the war, he, f- he formed a pro-Southern secession militia company in Delaware. His father was a United States senator at the time. In fact, Byard was arrested and held, disarmed by the Union Army. Later then would serve in Congress and then, of course, in the executive branch. But he was such an important part of American political history. His father was, too. I wrote my dissertation on his father, which is how I have connection with the son, too. And um, I, I we published a speech this week. Talk about what's happening in America right now. We've got the January 6th commission, so you got that going on, and you have all the discussions about election fraud and all these things. There's a good piece in Chronicles about, you know, is is there some case to be made for some election fraud? And, uh, and there's some irregularities and inconsistencies. Okay, and Edward, Edward Welsh did a really good job with that. This isn't new, right? I mean, what people need to understand, if you study enough history, you figure things out. This isn't new. And the title of this piece is a sham of free government. This is a speech he made in the Senate. And it was, um, he delivered it in uh, the 1870s, I think 1879. And he said some really interesting things here. He said some things that I think are applicable to any situation at any time. Because he's talking about American principles. He's talking about an election that he believes was fraudulent in Louisiana, where violence was perpetrated, and now they're going to send in the troops. They're going to send in the soldiers to ensure that there's, quote-unquote, free elections in Louisiana. At one point, he says the conservatives were vigilant. They were constant. They were courageous. But their apprehensions were but too sadly to be verified. And the overwhelming majority of the conservatives in the legislature of the state of Louisiana was nullified in a small majority, I believe, of two votes given to the Kellogg Party in the House of Representatives by the garbled, false, partial returns of this board. This was done in the presence of the whole country. Day by day, the charge was made and proven. The country knew it. No one denied it. The president of the United States was advised of it. He was kept well informed of it, and his semi-official utterances made known to the people that no matter what fraud should be accomplished by this board, they should be maintained at every cost, or that somebody should be hurt in case interference was attempted with their nefarious proceedings. That is to say, if any resistance to a clear, plain wrong was made by an outraged community. Now think about what Byard just said there. Byard, by the way, he was always a friend of the South. Always. His father was as well. He was always a friend of the South. But think about what he just said here. It doesn't matter if all this is fraudulent. It doesn't matter. We just need to get in line and go along with it. And if you don't, we're going to use the military to ensure that you do. That's that's what's being said in the 1870s in Louisiana. And he's bashing President Grant here. And so we have this resuscitation, supposedly, of President Grant by the neoconservative right and the Straussians. And that's what we're told is real conservatism in America. We can tear down Lee, but um, we we, we can't say anything about President Grant. 
We can't do that at all. He said this, Mr. President, absolute unlimited power is unknown to the American system of government or to any other system of government pretending to be called free. The people of the states and the states as integral parts of the federal union have delegated certain enumerated powers to their rulers and reserved all others expressly to the written charter to the states and to the people. To omit the execution of just power is clearly a breach of duty of the executive and to assume power not delegated is a usurpation quite as dangerous as rebellion and just as promptly to be checked. He's actually throwing it back at the Republicans. What you're doing here is just as dangerous as what you call the rebellion. It's just as dangerous and should be checked. We're basically giving up free government because of President Grant. So why should we think President Grant is a good guy? He says, Mr. President, I asked the Senate, I asked the American people, had President Grant the legal warrant for interference by troops at that time, in that manner, at that place? Had Governor Kellogg the power himself to do it? Had he the lawful power to call upon the president or any other person to interfere as was done on that day? Where is the law? Where is the constitutional provision from which such a right can be implied, however remotely or indirectly? There has been none yet cited, and I make bold here today to say that this debate will begin and it will close, and there will be no lawyer, as I believe, of this body who will be able to produce the statute or even attempt to twist or force the construction of words that will give any warrant for this act. Think about what that, he's saying this in 1879. And think about where we are in 2021. I mean, this is why studying the Southern tradition, and I would consider Bayard part of that. Again, from Delaware, uh, not necessarily considered a Southern state by any stretch of the imagination today, but certainly. At the time, South Carolina considered it so in 1860, but uh, Bayard is pointing out some things that are very important. The Bayard family is one of the most important conservative families in the history of the United States. It's really forgotten. So all these things, literature, heroes, political tradition, all of this stuff is important for understanding of the South and to have a real view of people. To make this, I mean, Southerners were, were good people. We can disagree with some of the things they did, but they were good people. And I think that's where, and when you say they're not, you're spitting on entire, you're spitting on an entire section of the United States and all of their descendants are saying your people weren't good. It's immoral and evil. That's the very definite definition of evil. All right. Until next time. Good day. Mm -hmm.